Hello everyone, welcome to Optimize Interviews Knowledge Videos. My name is Danuk Pereira and today we will talk about the four key pillars of medical ethics. So the reason I'm making this video is mainly because actually when you are answering your ethics station questions, um, it's really important to try and have um, a structure and also be able to, you know, within that structure, be able to signpost to different sections and so that your examiner understands and it makes it easier for them to give you points. Um, and, it, and it also highlights that you have an understanding of the, you know, the basic principles of medical ethics and that your examples are there to highlight your experience. So firstly, have an understanding so you're able to describe it. And secondly, you're able to um, associate it appropriately to, you know, once you understand what these different ethical principles are, you can then demonstrate that you um, you know, that you understand the base, you know, the principle behind your example. And, and finally, I mentioned example, you know, it, it's a good idea to have examples from your own practice or um, from your own experience, whether that's something that you've experienced yourself or you've seen um, in your own sort of journey through medicine. So without further ado, let's talk about the four key principles. What are they? So beneficence, number one, non-maleficence, um, autonomy and justice. So those are the four key principles of medical ethics. And let's talk about them one at a time. Um, so beneficence is, um, is in essence, it translates to to do good in Latin. And that means that the decisions and actions of a doctor must be made um, in the best interest of the patient. Um, so let me give you an example so that we can talk about it. So um, an 87-year-old patient presents to hospital following a fall and is currently delirious and refusing any treatment. It transpires that the patient is suffering from pneumonia and would require intravenous antibiotics to be treated appropriately. Do you treat this patient against their wishes? So in this scenario, you know, um, it appears that the patient does not have capacity um, as um, you know, explained by the fact that they are firstly making an irrational decision and secondly, uh, they appear to be delirious and incapable of making decisions. So it's your responsibility to check capacity. If the patient is not capacitous, then, then you know, then it's your responsibility and, you know, you have a duty of care to the patient to act on their best interest since they are not incapable of doing it themselves. But this may involve, um, you know, talking to your team, um, involving the multidisciplinary team so that they can support you in your decision-making. Uh, secondly, you may need to talk to an expert team so that the patient is represented. And if there's no expert team, you may wish to involve an IMCA, which is an independent mental, you know, mental capacity advocate um, who can also represent patients' best interest. Um, and it may involve actually introduction of what we call a dose in the first instance. Dolls is a deprivation of liberties and safeguards. In, in essence, as for the Mental Health Act, you are depriving this patient's um, uh, liberties um, and uh, you're doing so in on the best interest of the patient uh, in order to keep the patient from harm. Um, and using that, you're able to, um, you know, uh, prevent the patient from doing any harm to his, him or herself. Secondly, you're able to then subsequently provide 
treatment that may ultimately treat their um, condition that is making them delirious and unwell. And when you're considering a situation like this, you know, first of all, you're considering, you know, if the patient's refusing treatment and then you're considering the fact that this is an 87-year-old who has come into hospital with a fall and it, clearly this is causing metabolic derangement, causing them to be delirious. And secondly, a pneumonia in an 87-year-old carries a very high mortality rate. So unless treated and unless given intravenous treatment, it's likely this patient will succumb to the infection and there's a high mortality rate. So secondly, and so that's, that's, you know, that's your consideration of not treating the patient as per their wishes. Now, given that they don't have capacity, your consideration is to treat them because, you know, treating them gives them the best opportunity to recover from a pneumonia. Um, and so, so that's how you weigh up beneficence. So let's talk about the next scenario, which is, um, you know, the next principle, which is non-maleficence, and it translates to, to, to do no harm. Um, so non-maleficence states that a medical practitioner has a duty uh, to, to, to not allow harm um, or damage to be caused to a patient through either neglect or through their actions. Now, this is slightly different from beneficence in that, first of all, in an action or a treatment, if, if the action or treatment causes harm to a patient, then uh, that, you know, more harm to a patient than good, then it should not be considered. An example of this is uh, got an 88-year-old patient who presents, unfortunately, I've got very elderly opti you know, octogenarians in my scenarios, uh, but it hopefully puts things into perspective. You have an 88-year-old patient with advanced COPD uh, with a very poor functional capacity uh, at baseline with a community DNAR. And unfortunately, this patient presents to hospital with another exacerbation of COPD and unfortunately respiratory failure and currently does not have capacity uh, to talk, talk about escalation plans and resuscitation status or indeed treatment options. But you are aware that they have a community DNAR in situ. Despite the previous community DNR, the family insists that the patient should not be should should be considered for CPR and for intubation. Um, now, on the one hand, having a ceiling of care is a safeguard, yeah. So and um, so it allows appropriate treatments to be provided to a patient, and by that, it is the medical decision or the decision of the treating medical team to decide what is appropriate, and it may be done by the doctor seeing the patient or the team looking after that patient, including the consultant and the registrar and the SHOs. Um, it may be done with consultations with other uh, service providers, for example, the intensivists who may, you know, wish to give an opinion regarding um, the pros and cons of intubating such a patient with advanced COPD. And the second important stakeholder, or probably the first important stakeholder in this scenario is actually the patient who um, I would assume, um, and again, you shouldn't just assume, you should clarify this, but if a patient has a community DNAR um, order in situ um, and you've seen the documentation, it's important to clarify what conversations have been had with the patient. Now, if the patient's understanding of their clearly quite advanced disease process and the irreversibility of the disease process and the ultimate um, um, progression of this disease 
is that at some point they are likely to succumb to the disease itself um then you know then then i think it's very clear and if and it's very clear that the patient did not wish to have um potentially uh, traumatic um prolonged hospital admission with you know various lines and intubation which is unlikely to be um providing the patient with a good quality of life in the long run hence their decision making and and secondly you know it, it really is you know resuscitation status and escalation of care is really um a decision to be made by the treating medical team uh, based on what is deemed to be appropriate medical care now while it may be and even if the patient was capacitors you know while the pa it may be that the patient has the ability to accept or reject offered treatment it's unusual for a patient to be um demanding for certain treatments which the medical team feels inappropriate now having said that you know you could gauge um you know you could consider another ethical principle which is justice um you know it is important that um you know in a way that we treat every patient fairly and clearly you know it, it is important that you make this decision about escalations of care and feelings of care, having had a discussion with the multidisciplinary team uh, because um you know it is important to safeguard patients uh, by making sure that the actions of a you know a treating team is governed by their body that is in line with the with the appropriate guidelines uh, and that is not a uh, inappropriate decision but by all means in clearly sounds like it's appropriate not to intubate the patient of this um covid comorbid status and actually you know um the the real question is if if you were to sort of um succumb to the demands of the family based on uh, based on uh you know and and actually leave somebody of this uh significant comorbidity and illness um without a dna or an escalation plan and potentially harmful treatments will be given to the patient and, and you know it, it would unfortunately deny this patient the dignity and respect that that they um that they perhaps would have wished to have at the end of their life it's really important to have these sort of very serious discussions um with the patient and if you are unable to do so explain the decision making to the family also now it moves on very nicely to our next um ethical principle which is autonomy now autonomy describes the principle that capacitors adults have the right to make informed judgments about their healthcare and as such has the right to accept or reject proposed treatment strategies by medical professionals now as a medical professional it's our duty to provide patients with all the relevant information so that they could um, weigh up the pros and cons and make an informed decision about their care um and if a patient makes a decision that you consider irrational despite providing all of that information not you know that doesn't necessarily mean that the patient is not capacitors or lacks capacity um you know and and the point is that um you know it is if the patient is able to consider all the different options and 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 weigh up the pros and cons and communicate an appropriate 
um, response to you having considered these different options, even if the 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 um, you know the proposed outcome from that discussion is in your mind irrational, if the patient has capacity to make that decision, then you know we should respect the patient's wishes. Um, an example of this is when um, you know um, when a patient refuses life-saving treatment, such as a blood transfusion, based on personal or religious beliefs, and that's a classic example that's always um, you know used in this scenario. Um, and uh, so, declining a blood transfusion in the context of a you know major bleed uh, based on religious um, beliefs is is an example of a you know a, for example a Jehovah's Witness presenting to hospital. Um, and um, you know they, from their perspective, having a, a blood transfusion would be um, you know against their wishes and actually um, likely to cause them harm, quite significant psychological harm, as because you know their their um, beliefs are such that actually receiving a blood transfusion is is against their religious beliefs. So, um, so in that context. Um, it is the, the duty of a, a doctor to respect that, but also try to provide as much support as possible. So it may be that um, you um, explore other treatment options in that scenario um, and try to work with the patient and provide the patient with as much information as possible and as much support as possible in order to overcome their condition and their current state um, by but, but being respectful and um, and allowing the patient to make the relevant decisions about what treatments that they will um, accept, um, but ensuring that the patient is fully informed in their decision-making process uh, so that they are safeguarded. And, and finally, the last ethical principle is justice, and it describes the principle that all Patients must be treated fairly, um, and the idea that the distribution of resources must be equal and proportionate. Now, um, you know, the examples that come to mind when you talk about justice is uh, the matter of cancer care. So, cancer patients, for example, have um, are referred directly under a two-week wait pathway, which may potentially mean that those patients get seen very quickly. Um, and patients who may have other conditions, for example, diabetes or hypertension or hypercholesterolemia, who have chest pain, for example, or ischemic heart disease, they may be pushed slightly further back. Um, now, the argument in that scenario is that proportionally, a small group of people may have cancer, and actually, um, those patients uh, get early investigations, early input into you know secondary services. Uh, and potentially very expensive treatments are provided to this group of patients, which, um, you know, um, for example, the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy treatment may be very expensive, and there's only a finite pot of money that is available, um, and therefore, you know, allocating uh, such a huge sum of resources and money uh, takes it away from, you know, other services. For example, you know, if you were to talk about um, a service that assesses uh, you know, a blood pressure and a set of bloods that does, you know, a cardiovascular examination and identifies high-risk patients and gives them a statin, for example, or, you know, uh, a disease-modifying treatment. So it takes away that resource to a very small, potentially, group of people. And 
So the idea is, you know, how do you balance the distribution of resources in 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 a uh, in a system such as the NHS? Um, you know, secondly, you know, another example is um, are you know is the are the new lipid lowering drugs which um, like for example the PCSK9 inhibitors which are um, commissioned through uh, specialized lipid clinics now they cost a lot of money because they are under a, a drug patent from a company um, and um, and they have a benefit to a very small proportion of the population whereas the vast majority of people will not um, have uh, will not need such expensive drugs and will simply get better by having a very cheap drug such as a statin. So how do you justify the allocation of resources? Does everyone get uh, these very expensive medications? And does everyone get allocated into a clinic? Or is it only patients who um, have tried and failed the basic treatment who are then, you know, um, uh, you know, then allocated as per their risk? Um, you know, for example, based on their age and other cardiovascular risk factors, such as their comorbidity status. Is that how you allocate um, referral to a specialist clinic which has access to treating patients with such, uh, you know, disproportionate high cholesterol levels? So, um, so justice is, um, is regarding, the principle of justice is to treat the population fairly and allocate um, the resources available, uh, which is finite, um, in a proportionate manner, so that um, the needs of the many are also catered, but also the needs of the few are also respected and catered also. Um, and you have to do that in such a way that it identifies, you know, the system identifies problems uh, and treats it. Now, the argument for, if you go back to the, the, the argument about cancer patients, um, the argument for having a cancer pathway is that actually having early diagnosis, early treatment, um, and, um, you know, causes significant um, early detection rates and actually may reduce the risk of patients presenting at a later stage when they are unlikely to survive the treatment. And so treatment futility is high. And actually, if you were to identify a problem early, it's much more likely that they will maintain independence for longer and actually have a more productive outcome in life um, and potentially, uh, you know, the family members who are involved in this case and perhaps patients will also remain independent and will not need as much resources down the line. Uh, so, you know, there is an argument for treating and identifying patients who often certain niche um, and potentially offering them extensive treatment that obvious benefit being further down the line, they are likely to maintain independence and have better health and better outcomes if you were to identify these rare problems early. So that's essentially a whistle-stop tour through the four principles of medical ethics. I hope you've um, you know, taken some of those cases on board and um, have a, you know, idea about some of your own examples that you can introduce uh, in your answers when you're asked about this. But in, in principle, you know, knowing about beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and um, justice as a broad spectrum of four key principles and 
in, in and um, uh, and introducing those into your answer will be a very useful way to demonstrate your knowledge. But also, I would recommend that you had examples from your own, you know, clinical experience that you can introduce and uh, in order to demonstrate your understanding and your exposure to these, so that um, your answers are uh, give the idea that you have not only experience but also a very good understanding and a good grasp of the ability to weigh the pros and cons with each of these different topics. Hope that was useful.